Summer is almost over and we are celebrating this with a student special. And why students, you might ask, because this is quite unique, right? We've in the past been interviewing industry specialists. We've been looking at a lot of professional reports, research uh, from the, the market. But today we're taking a very different point of view. Young people bring a lot of new ideas to the field. Universities are budding with creative ideas, new perspectives, things that perhaps push the boundaries and the definitions of healthcare as we know it. And we here at Healthcare Focus wanted to celebrate that. But what we've done is something very special. We have actually sought out uh, young minds that have also had work experience previously. And so for most of them, they are returning to a master's degree or a PhD with some experience on the ground under their belt. And so the perspectives that they'll be sharing in the next three episodes are quite unique. They're a blend of all of those up and coming things that we see in you know think tanks and, and universities, but they are also um, concrete experiences on the ground, the result of uh, months and years of actually seeing what's what's happening and personally um, lived through experiences and the combination of those two is, is probably a very unique flavor. Uh, we are going to start today with Elizabeth Belskis. So she is uh, going to talk about behavioral health, which is one of her key expertise. Um, this is partly what she's been working on um, during her internship this summer, but she's also uh, studying right now for a PhD in um, medical ethics. So it's a very interesting combination of ideas. Elizabeth, behavioral health is becoming more and more of a topic on our minds um, these days. And it's not something that was always at the foreground in, in healthcare. Why do you think there's such a sudden interest in this? Well, I think that actually because it has always been sort of ignored or there has been an attempt to ignore behavioral health, um, that now it's just sort of been pushed to the foreground. Um, And I think that, you know, these needs have always existed, um, but given that the number of people who are trying to access care for behavioral health needs are increasing, and given that um, people who are coming in to receive healthcare services are now experiencing behavioral health needs as well, and we're not equipped to deal with that, um, that there has been this increase in the visibility of behavioral health as a legitimate need that has to be serviced. Was it an increase at all levels or are there certain pockets of people that we know right now are maybe really in need of it more than maybe others? Yeah, well, I mean, across the board, especially if you're looking at emergency department admissions, um, the rates of people who are coming to emergency departments with depression and anxiety as like their primary concern have been increasing in every state in the United States um, in the past few decades. And so there are you know, other types of behavioral health diagnoses that have maybe stayed more stagnant. Um, for example, like psychotic disorders, people with schizophrenia, um, those numbers have stayed around the same, speaking about ED admissions, um, but 
the the increase has really been seen in I would say like mood disorders, anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we dive into, because I think everyone's been exposed to this idea of um, depression, anxiety, this is something that we all come across, but you mentioned schizophrenia. I think there's another couple of um, mm-hmm. conditions, or I'm not sure how you, you would call this, qualify those, um, that are also, maybe sh- we should expand our thinking and include that as we go forward. Can you tell me a little bit about what are those experiences like? And maybe from the person's perspective, like from a patient's perspective, how do they see the world? Yeah, and so I would say, um, so schizophrenia is a type of psychotic disorder. And so psychosis is a sort of like, it's a way to describe an experience, right? So within that symptoms you may experience are auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, um, feelings of paranoia. Um, I think those are ones that we see pretty frequently. And so I think from the perspective, as someone who does not experience a psychotic disorder, um, what I can say from having worked with that population is that they do still experience sort of like interpersonal relationships in a meaningful way. Um, they do sort of, you know, still want the same things that anyone would want, the ability to build a meaningful life, um, to be able to have sense on what they're doing, to work towards something, to have goals, to have meaningful relationships. Um, But that's often inhibited by the symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, And also, I would say, by a culture, and until very recently, by healthcare system that can't accommodate their symptoms. So if somebody is experiencing, for example, auditory hallucinations, if you and I were having this conversation right now and you were asking me questions, but as you were asking me questions, I was hearing these voices that you couldn't hear, it would, number one, affect my ability to really hear and process what you were asking me. Um, But then it would also affect things like my ability to answer you in a timely manner, my ability to think through my answers to your questions. Um, And depending on what, you know, the voices that I'm hearing are saying, it could even make me just not want to answer. Because if you're hearing a voice that says, you're stupid, she doesn't care what you think, or nobody cares what you think, then that can really affect your self-esteem, as well as your want to interact with other people Um, and so I think that yeah on one hand individuals who are experiencing these mental health challenges are very much you know it's kind of a cliche but yes like they're just like us Um, on the other hand I think that they do have a lot of barriers to being able to live the kind of lives that everyone deserves because we don't include them enough in how we both organize our society but then also treat each other right so that's interesting because you say they we have you know needs that are common but they still have very specific barriers when i hear that i'm thinking from a managerial perspective or from a budgeting perspective um so it, it seems like the the service is extremely important for them to be able to integrate society and have a somewhat normal life or a mm-hmm. fulfilling life. But at the same time, with that much diversity, can you have you can't have one treatment plan that that aims at all. So I'm guessing they're all specialized treatment plans. How is this a minority in the population? Does this mean diverting a lot of funds or a lot of uh, resources 
for a smaller group because we believe as a principle as a society that everyone has a chance to be so fulfilled or how how would you see this from an economic standpoint is it is it an easy thing to fix so i don't think it's an easy thing to fix i do think that we have begun to move in the right direction through the development of early intervention first episode psychosis programs um so i used to work for one of those programs in oregon and essentially the framework is that if you have someone who's experienced their first break and so that's when they've had this onset of hallucinations delusions paranoia um if you have individuals who have experienced that intervening very early so within ideally the first year of when they've experienced their first break and in a very comprehensive way so the team that i work for was a program called isa and participants in that program were given access to a therapist, a psychiatric prescriber, a nurse to help with their physical conditions as well, a case manager, a peer support specialist, um, a vocational education specialist, other participants with like group activities, and then their support systems were also given education about their diagnoses and attended a problem-solving and support group. Um, and so if you intervene very early and very comprehensively, then we've seen that outcomes for these people over time have improved dramatically. Whereas even just, you know, 50 years ago, if someone received a diagnosis of schizophrenia, it was, I mean, maybe dramatic to say a death sentence, but it was a very dramatic diagnosis. You could see, you know, you're not going to be able to have a job, you're not going to be able to have meaningful relationships, um, you may end up homeless. I think that's always been the, the kind of stereotype for that situation. But we have seen that intervening early and very importantly, making attempts to keep people with their communities, keep people with meaningful relationships, keep people having the ability to do work that they find meaningful improves outcomes over time and also has led to individuals being able to recover. And so that looks different, right? Recovery looks different for other for every person, but it really has changed our ability to address psychotic disorders more broadly speaking. So in relation to your question about economics, I think that we've found that by really putting resources into that initial phase, by going very, very hard at the beginning, we've been able to save a lot of money down the line when it comes to treating these individuals because traditionally those are the people who are showing up in emergency departments, who are utilizing inpatient treatment, who are going to state hospitals. Um, because they have not been treated sort of in an adequate way and because they have social situations that sort of exacerbate their symptoms. So if we're able to really wrap ourselves around them and to really integrate them into communities at the onset of their illness, then you do end up saving a significant amount of money down the line. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's very counterintuitive because you've basically yeah. named seven <laughs> stakeholders that are all servicing one per person. That's you, you may think, wow, seven to one is a huge ratio, but you're saying down the line it can actually save costs I'm, I'm thinking it's also interesting if you if you look at it from um, um, 
you know, billing perspective, sometimes departments have and professions and different things like the timeline. It might be hard to say I'm investing from this department now, but your department in five years saves money. I think this is where maybe data will play an interesting um, part because if over time we're able to document and prove that there is a gain in efficiency, we might start working more cross silo and saying, well, you know, I'm going to enlist your help as such and such specialist. I know that, you know, down the road, seven of us together can make a bigger impact than one person in five years, for example. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because there's been a large acceptance of this model when thinking about psychotic disorders, right? So I, I mean, every single state in the United States has at least one, if not multiple, first episode psychosis programs. But there's been some interesting work um, about sort of to what extent would it actually be helpful and cost effective to take that model into different sort of corners of behavioral health. And so the the findings so far have been kind of mixed. Um, It doesn't really, and this is, I guess, intuitive, but it doesn't really make sense to have as many wraparound services if somebody is lower acuity. Um, If you have someone who is experiencing mild depression, they don't typically need a case manager and a peer support and, you know, potentially occupational therapy. Um, But if somebody really is higher acuity, then, or has different social factors that are affecting their ability to remain in community, then those services end up being more helpful. Um, But it's still, they're still figuring out to what extent that model works um, across different populations. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's a a cost-benefit analysis. Absolutely, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned this idea of making a model that you can reuse because we've been working uh, this summer on the different, um, you know, hospitals caring for maternal care specifically with substance abuse and we heard that a lot about it's not about just this opioid epidemics right now it's about designing a model that later when the next crisis hits we can we can reuse that yeah is it easy to generalize something like that how do you plan for something you don't know will happen why why is this model valid so i think that it's not easy to generalize because so much of it is context-specific and community-specific, but I do think that the maybe like the principles, the orientation around the model is easy to generalize, if that makes sense. So I think that you know what your program would actually look like and its components will always be different depending on where you are. If you're in a rural area versus an urban area, even if you're in an urban area, what city are you in? What populations are you serving within that city, right? So that's going to look very different because social situations look different, communities look different, community needs are different, individual needs are different, right? So I think that if you, even if you have two programs that have the same basic approach, the particular parts that are being utilized and the way in which they're being utilized are going to look very different. However, I do think that this this strive to meet people where they are and to be very needs-based and attentive, that that can be generalized. Um, And so I do think that in the case of something like opioid use disorder for pregnant women, 
um, it's a great approach because everyone is going to be at a different stage in terms of their level of denial about their use, um, their level of acceptance about what that could do to their child and to themselves. Um, and so if you're not being very attentive to the different factors that influence somebody's behavior, then you're not going to be successful in reaching them. And so on that level, yes, I think it is very easy to generalize, um, but it's going to look very different. And there's always going to be different factors that influence your ability to meet people's needs. Absolutely. I think yeah. it's going to be interesting moving forward to look at how we generalize that um, opioid crisis you know, model that we're, we're developing because compared to other, I mean, when you're looking at schizophrenia or, or different you know, conditions, I'm assuming that the makeup in terms of population is fairly consistent, but I'm looking at opioid abuse and I think this is one of the things that we didn't expect the, the social classes that were affected, like the makeup is slightly different and I'm assuming the resources they have access to to solve that problem is going to be vastly different than maybe, you know, something that's not as um, widespread and encompasses so much of the population at all different levels. So. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting too because for something like schizophrenia, because it is so far on an extreme um, that people can recognize, I think, the need for intensive services for that population because it's outside of most people's experience, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think the majority of people can say, oh, if somebody is experiencing auditory hallucinations, of course they're going to need extra support. I think that with opioid use disorder, there's a lot of stigma around the quote-unquote choice to use drugs. And so, I'll, I mean, I'll be very interested to see, as you're saying, how this sort of moves forward into the future, because on one hand, that stigma still exists culturally, um, but on the other hand, it is so widespread at this point, and I mean, the numbers are growing. And so I think at some point, just as a society, we're going to have to reconcile those two things. How do we acknowledge that large population of people need this support? We can't do that, I think, unless if we get over the stigma that we have in some sense. And that to some degree moves over from healthcare to almost population health. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I also think since we're already talking about stigma, it is really important to talk about the stigma that healthcare providers have also perpetuated against these populations. Um, Interesting. That a so, lot... Yeah, so uh, Yeah, so enlighten me a bit, because they, of all people, know best that it can be, you know, a, a genetic condition, or it, even if it's affected by your, your environment, you would think that they have access to that level of education, which the commoner may not. Well, I think... They should. <laughs> and what your, your, your comment is actually getting at the sort of wider problem that we find in healthcare is that if you think about the education, for example, of a physician, they have a wide range of things that they learn about. Anything related to psychiatry, behavioral health, that's one small unit within their schooling. And so we find I would say across the board for physicians, for nurses, for hospital staff, generally speaking, and especially in emergency departments, um, most staff does not have training or knowledge both about 
behavioral health concerns, but also how to best serve those populations. And so you, you wind up having hospitals that feel very unsafe, that feel very judgmental towards people experiencing these types of health conditions because the staff is not educated on what is going on with them and also how to best serve them. And also, I think an opioid use disorder, just substance use disorder more generally, that cultural bias does come in. And even if there is this sort of awareness on one sense that, okay, yes, this might not all be volitional, there could be a genetic component, the way that these patients are typically treated does not reflect that. Yeah. That is interesting. I also wonder how it affects the dynamics, because if I am not well-versed in certain aspects but I don't necessarily understand your competency around it mm-hmm. I hear a lot about you know multidisciplinary teams working together I heard in your model this idea of seven different stakeholders servicing that central patient yeah. and yet if the learning is siloed can you really achieve um, a holistic approach this way or is this idea that because I myself am not first in it but you are eventually by putting us on the table these these talks will happen or these decisions will be improved. Yeah, well I think one of the great things about first episode psychosis programs is that in order to be a person who works in any capacity for the program, even somebody who works as a patient access representative, so who checks people in in the waiting room, you have to have the same training about the program and about psychotic disorders. And so just as part of your onboarding into the program, you have to receive that basic education so that everyone has the same vocabulary, so that everyone has been able to say, okay, here are the cultural myths about psychotic disorders. Here is the truth about what we know as people who treat these individuals, right? Um, And so I think that that's incredibly important when you have a multidisciplinary team, because as you're saying, if you are going through med school, you get a very different education than somebody who's going through nursing school. Also, even just across programs, you're not being necessarily taught the same thing outside of that sort of like basic, you know, human anatomy, things like that. Um, And so I think that having that sort of unified education is incredibly important. I do think there's ways to do that. Um, I know that all hospitals or healthcare organizations do have an onboarding process and orientation Um, And I think that it would be doable. I know there's always a fight for time within that process because you want people to be able to start as quickly as possible. But I do think that there are ways to at least give basic education and overviews of the diagnoses within behavioral health you might see most frequently at the emergency department, for example. And then what are best practices for how to serve or engage with those people. So I'd like to challenge you a little bit further on that. I think there's a lot of things we already know. For example, the general population knows about depression and, you know, to, to a basic degree. And still, there's there's still ways in which when it happens in the workplace or in different places, it's not necessarily handled, handled with that empathy. Mm-hmm. Is knowledge the only piece we're missing? Or is there other types of things we need to ingrain in our society so that beyond just knowing 
these are the facts and it may not be that person's fault, we're actually effective at engaging with them. Yeah, so I think that it's knowledge, but then also knowledge of interventions, right, for strategies of engagement. Um, because like you're saying, I think that now we're at the point culture where people have basic knowledge of, you know, like, these are the symptoms of depression. If you're experiencing depression, you may feel these things. Um, if for no other reason than that we have pharmaceutical ads everywhere <laughs> that tell us if you're experiencing these symptoms, you might need this pill. Um, so I think that we do have that kind of base knowledge, at least for the sort of more widespread diagnoses. I think that for some diagnoses, that isn't available yet, right? So like for personality disorders, for psychotic disorders, um, that's not as widespread. But I also think that having that more like applied knowledge of what is a good way of engaging with this person. So something akin to a mental health first aid training where you learn specifically like what is actually going to be helpful to a person if you see that they are experiencing these symptoms as opposed to just that general knowledge can be really helpful. That makes sense. Yeah. We all know that Facebook isn't for business, but let's face it, sometimes we just want to wind down. So we've created a fun space. It's full of quirky facts and very clever inventions in the medical realm. And hey, it is all about healthcare, just not the serious stuff. So next time you take a break, find us on Facebook. So we spoke a lot in the first part of this interview about the idea of early interventions. Mm -hmm. And specifically, you were mentioning for the schizophrenia. Um, well, for psychotic for disorders. Psychotic disorders. Schizophrenia is just one of them, yeah. Perfect. And I'm very curious, like intuitively, you would say, well, I, I understand the costs probably you know, add up over time. Um, but why would a first encounter be any different than you know, a fifth episode? Yeah, so the interesting thing about sort of psychotic disorders more generally speaking, but since we're using the example of schizophrenia, we can say schizophrenia, is that there are some things that the scientific community understands about what's happening in the brain, but there's also a lot that we don't know. For whatever reason, we found that the earlier that you intervene, the better. So just across the board, the earliest that you can reach someone and get them involved in this type of wraparound treatment, the better their outcomes are. Why? Because the, there's a progression in the actual disease? Well, so there can be, but I think that it's not... The reason that it's a little bit difficult to answer this question is because there are so many factors that go into the progression potentially of something like schizophrenia, right? So on one hand, there is what's happening in your brain. Um, so just on that very sort of basic, like, synapses firing. <laughs> um, on the other hand, there are a lot of social and sort of like community and interpersonal relationship factors that can either exacerbate or sort of tamper down symptoms, so to speak, right? So if you look at, especially like the history of even how we've treated schizophrenia, originally, if someone was diagnosed with schizophrenia, even like, you know, 50, 40 years ago, the thought was, this is sort of coming to be because the way in which this person was parented or relates with their family is bad. 
And so people were removed from their families pretty much immediately. They were removed from their significant relationships. They were isolated so that they could be treated, and that made the disease worse. Um, And so we've been able to see over time, the more you can stay integrated into the community, the more you can maintain those meaningful relationships, the more you have a sense of self that's coherent, the better your outcomes will be. And so maintaining that from the beginning is really significant. So the longer you go without being treated, of course, people who aren't treated at first episode can recover, can do well, can have good outcomes. But that just sort of goes down as a possibility. The percentage of that goes down. Um, But it's not entirely clear to what extent that is because you need antipsychotics like immediately or if it's because you had a period of time where you were removed from your community or if you know there was something about your social situation that became exacerbated and then that is what sort of made the disease progress in the way that it did Um, so there are a lot of different factors that play into that but the thing that we do know is that earlier is always better. <laughs> so that, That's amazing because, and we've seen that too with some of the programs we were looking at um, more recently, not not in this area, in another area, but it looks like the outcomes are improving. We yeah. we know there's a host of things we don't necessarily know what to attribute to where, yeah. which I think is, is interesting if you're trying to replicate this model somewhere, you're replicating it as a holistic thing, I imagine, not being sure which part is really the one affecting it yeah exactly and so I think that like that's one of the things that is interesting just about behavioral health more generally speaking because anything within behavioral health is either extremely exacerbated by negative social determinants or is really aided by like positive relationships positive social determinants um and so I think that honestly that's one of the reasons why behavioral health has been neglected historically because at least within the United States we want to pinpoint you know what is wrong with a person on the physiological level can we target that and fix that one thing and we don't have as you're saying that more holistic look like what actually is this person's experience and how can we sort of treat the person as opposed to treating a diagnosis and so I think that in behavioral health you always have to be considering the whole person and not just the whole person as an individual, but the person in relationships, in community, um, and all of their facets. And so it, and so like to make the changes that you need to make, it really does require kind of a radical overhaul of how we think about our health more generally speaking, which is why I think it gets pushed to the side a bit. Um, (laughs) because people don't want to make that change they want to keep thinking about okay what is this one problem that we can then like target and fix and then send people on their way so so when you say that it makes me think as a doctor one could prescribe something because something's wrong with your body and there's a certain locus of power like yeah you can write a prescription and that person can be cured how do you go about helping someone when it's about the social support you're saying the outcome is contingent on a good social support system but you can't always make up a social support system if there is none with that person exactly and i think that that's one of the most difficult parts about working in behavioral health and i can speak to my experience working as a crisis mental health counselor 
I worked at a clinic that was designed to divert emergency department visits for behavioral health patients when they were not appropriate. And that was one of the most difficult components of my job because if I had someone who would come in and they were expressing suicidal ideation and they were very sort of desperate and hopeless in that moment, if a large portion of what was contributing to that feeling of hopelessness was, you know, I've been homeless for a year now and I can't find housing and I can't find a job because my symptoms are too overwhelming. And so I can't even work towards housing. And now I don't have any friends. The only people I know who are somewhat friendly to me, I can't trust because they're also homeless and they've stolen my things before. So if you have someone who is in that state, yes, you can probably succeed at keeping them from taking their own life. But it's very hard, just emotionally and from the perspective of somebody who wants to help treat people, to think about how to help that person and their wellness, because so much of what they are experiencing could be alleviated if they had a home, if they didn't have to worry about, will I get hurt or raped or murdered on the street? if I could be dry, if I knew where my food was coming from. All of these things make whatever they're experiencing worse and also don't allow them to focus on being able to work towards alleviating some of their other symptoms that might not be related to those like social factors, right? So if you, if you want to talk about building coping skills related to dealing with depression, it's very hard to do that if so much of your time and your energy has to be devoted to, am I physically safe right now? And and to bring it back to psychotic disorders, it's very hard for individuals who are experiencing paranoia, who are also experiencing homelessness, to suss out, am I appropriately afraid of my conditions right now? If I'm in the middle of a city and it's dark and I don't know where I'm going to sleep and it's you know, we're in the Midwest, it's cold in the winter. There are so many things to be legitimately kind of paranoid about in that situation where you're thinking, I don't know, like, is that person looking at me because they want to steal my spot? Are they looking at me because they want to hurt me? And so if you're someone whose symptom is feeling paranoid, that can just exacerbate that and also makes it difficult to reality check. Um, And so I think it is incredibly difficult and something that I think is shared, especially amongst therapists that I've worked with. It's hard to do the work that you're supposed to do, sort of like the clinically appropriate work in a way that is meaningful when these social factors aren't being addressed. Right. So it's interesting you bring that up because this idea of social determinants from the healthcare side, Mm -hmm. I'm also hearing a lot about that coming into play. Yeah. You're describing an overlap of three different things. You're saying there's physical health, mm-hmm. there's mental health, mm-hmm. there's the social context in which you operate, yeah. and it's that whole set that makes your condition. Yes. Our system builds for and you know treats in different arms. Is do do you, how do you see that in terms of care? Is this social component? Is a social determinant the the an issue for a doctor or is this so radical and so outside of their area of of 
potential power of, of affecting an outcome that it, it shouldn't be their business. So I think that it needs to be everyone's business. Um, but I also think that it does need to be the business of doctors just insofar, even if they can't be the ones specifically to change something in this person's sort of social world, um, they need to know that that's a component because I do think that it affects how they would think about their patient. Um, And I think that this move that we're seeing in some pockets towards integrated, like primary care and behavioral health um, is a very important move because the more that you can bring in those three components that you're talking about like into dialogue into conversation with each other i think the more successful we'll be able to be in treating patients and treating people um because the the more that they stay these separate conversations the more difficult it's going to be to understand how these different sides of things can work together mm-hmm. so i think you can integrate them in this way in this one point in time which is what you're just describing I think you could also integrate it by stretching out the time horizon because Mm -hmm. if I hear you correctly a lot of the things like you're looking at pain management at social isolation at a lot of maybe education plays into it I'm, I'm not sure which factor specifically but from a societal point of view there's many things that have nothing to do with healthcare mm-hmm. that could have been addressed at the point where it wasn't yet a healthcare issue and that end up transferring into the healthcare system yeah is there a bridge between those two currently in society or are there projects you've heard of or programs or approaches that would look really into that core and I'm also thinking about technology right like mm-hmm. with the uptake of technology what does that do to a new generation that might lack those social skills that might yeah. bully online like how is that exacerbating those those uh, situations I mean I think that there there have been pockets of programs and of people trying to address what you're talking about so there are individuals doing work on teaching sort of like coping skills mindfulness things of that nature in schools Um, there's a project that's being piloted this year in pittsburgh that's very exciting called project chill which is both a sort of attempt to set up a mindfulness space within a high school um, that anyone can use, staff can use, students can use, um, but then also has a curriculum associated with it that seeks to teach um, students, teachers, there's also a component for other staff at the school and for parents, skills to help, you know, regulate their emotions, um, to learn sort of like CBT techniques and grounding techniques, mindfulness techniques, um, to sort of just help generally with their wellness. So CBT being cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Um, And so I think that projects like that are really important because not only are you seeking to teach young people these skills that they otherwise might not learn you're also teaching their parents so that that can be reinforced at home you're also teaching the other sort of supportive adults in their life so that this can be reinforced across like a variety of settings and you're creating a community that has a cohesive shared vocabulary around mental health and so i think that also helps address the issue of stigma because A lot of times people don't seek out treatment even if they know that something is maybe not feeling right or that they're not feeling like themselves because they're worried about what other people would say or because they're worried that if they 
finally admit that it might be necessary for them to talk to somebody or to start education, that there's, you know, quote unquote, something wrong with them. Um, And so I think that if we make this effort to build these communities that do have this shared understanding and that utilize the same sort of like skills that teach everyone in the community these skills, that that is a great move towards these more like inclusive communities that can therefore help support especially young people, but really anyone in their progression of their mental wellness. Do we know in a lifetime, roughly, in a population, in any given population, how many people will be um, touched by any sort of mental illness? Well, so they say that for adults, it's one in five experience some type of mental illness. Um, So that's big. That's 20% of our population in a park, in a school, in a workplace, in our government. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, especially depending on the demographic, depending on the specific community, that can be much higher. Um, And just generally, I think, is probably much higher because, again, there's a huge gap between when people have an onset of symptoms and when they usually end up seeking care. For some people, it can take as long as, you know, 10 plus years from when they first begin experiencing symptoms to get care. So I think that one in five is definitely a starting point, but I also think that, you know, realistically, it's probably, yeah, it's underreported. And so really everyone is in some ways touched by mental illness because you are in community with people, whether you know it or not. Um, And it's a huge, huge consideration. Yeah. Very impressive. So what does Elizabeth suggest as reading? We've got you covered. Have a look at those show notes. It is the end of the episode, as you've guessed by uh, this little tidbit here. But as always, we invite you to take this as a diving board and start, you know, expanding the conversation. This is just the start. Now, this was the first of our three part episodes on uh, the student special. Next week, we have social work with Kyla Christensen, a very in, um, interesting and intriguing, I think, perspective, uh, expanding the medical definition to look at the human in a holistic manner and understanding how that affects health um, and how really, when we're talking about social determinants of health, how that's uh, being more and more part of the conversation and also a very interesting notation the week after we'll be having medical ethics with sarah morgan but more on that um, in a future episode now of course if you want to be reminded uh, of the episode when it does come in make sure you subscribe to this podcast and even as you sleep and you rest and you go about your daily life with work um, or studies for those of you who are students um, this will be delivered right to your device Thank you.